0: Love the cases, love the clauses, love the adverbs and the antecedents, love the words.
1: From ELFM. You're listening to Love the Words here on East Leeds FM from Chapel FM Art Centre in Seacroft, Leeds, UK. For the next six months, we are hosting our first publisher in residence, People Tree Press, based in Leeds but well known, renowned internationally. And... Uh, we're really pleased to be hosting People Tree in our local writers' library, named after the poet Helen Burke from York. And um, on Love the Words, for the f- last few weeks, uh, we've been talking to writers who are published by People Tree Press. Today, we're talking to Angela Barry, who has a new novel out with People Tree The Drowned Forest. <laughs> Hello, Angela. Hello, Peter. Lovely to have you with us. And uh, yeah, you're you're a writer. You're an educator. You've you've lived in Bermuda for many years. I you're from Bermuda. You've written somewhere that Bermuda is a much more complex place than people give it credit for. Get, perhaps you could expand on that.
0: Yes, uh, I think Bermuda um, suffers from uh, a malaise that most holiday destinations suffer from. In other words, um, there's a kind of double, a doubleness. Um, There is the place to which people come for holidays. They have a week, two weeks off from their normal life. Uh, They come to find things like sun and beach and relaxation and then they go back to their, their own reality. Well. For the the holiday destination, for the people who are born there and live there, that place is our reality. Um, We are not on holiday. It is not paradise. It is a member of the world, of the world community with all of the wonderful things, the horrific things um, and everything in between. So um, being a tourist destination um, is a complicated business. It really is.
1: And Bermuda has obviously a very rich history, but particularly a, a, a history of colonialism and enslavement. And perhaps you could, I mean, I know that you've taught a great deal about, you've taught courses about Bermuda and the history of Bermuda. Perhaps you could give us a, a, a potted history <laughs> at least of <in> the last <laughs> few hundred years, if that's possible. Well,
0: I'll try to do the 400 plus years in in four plus minutes. (laughs) Um, Well, uh, Bermuda is uh, unlike uh, what many people in Britain feel, Bermuda is not geographically in the Caribbean. Um, Bermuda is uh, about a thousand miles north of the most northerly of the Caribbean territories. Uh, So if we wanted to go to the Bahamas, for instance, it would take a a couple of hours worth of flying. Uh, So we are, in a sense, geographically isolated. Uh, And um, that has meant uh, a great deal in terms of how our history developed, our history developed in a very similar way to the Caribbean, but there were differences also. The the initial settlement of Bermuda by um, the English, they were not even British then, they were just English, um, was in 1609 when a a fleet bound for Virginia, uh, the the first colony of the American colonies, uh, suffering from starvation, this fleet was going to, to relieve Virginia. And um, a hurricane blew up. An Atlantic hurricane blew up. And uh, one of the ships was uh, shipwrecked off the reefs um, that surround Bermuda. And that was that ship was called the Sea Venture. And that's how Bermuda was initially settled. Um, uh, you know so the the seventeenth century was the beginning of our of the history that we know um by the time the the seventeenth century ended the, it was a settled colony um enslaved people were brought first of all from North America Indians or what would be called Native Americans they were the first to be brought as enslaved people and then um, Enslaved people of African descent were also brought. So by the end of the 17th century, um, the kind of community uh, that evolved into the Bermudian society uh, was was in place. Uh, so so yes, 18th century full time enslavement uh, and an attempt to, to find a way of making a living. Because unlike the Caribbean, there was no uh, plantation slavery. There was no sugarcane. There was no, there were no sort of crops of spices or bananas. Bermuda is very small and um, it does is not, does not have the kind of fertile soil that you'll find in the Caribbean. So we really had to struggle to find a way forward. And I, I won't go into those details, but um, Emancipation came in 1834, uh, and then ever since then, uh, the the society in Bermuda has been trying to um, move forward, but nevertheless has still been quite entrapped in that history of enslavement. Uh, And so we are now in the 21st century. Um, uh, when, When people come to Bermuda, they think, oh, you know, There's no poverty, there's no, you know, things are so wonderful here. Uh, Beautiful, it is beautiful, uh, but still you you just scratch the surface a little and you will find that those forces of history have uh, have really put a huge imprint on the people who live there, all of the people who live there.
1: in terms of your own writing, you have a new novel out with People Tree Press very shortly.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, like The Drowned Forest, and we're going to hear some extracts from that in a little while. But first of all, perhaps you could tell us a little about your writing and where it started.
0: Hmm. I think that my writing there were a couple of places where it started. Uh, I was a chronic asthmatic as a child. Uh, and uh, I spent a lot of time out of school.
2: Mm.
0: I think my writing life began because I I was in, in my room and I was by myself. And so the kind of in, an imaginative life began. And I think that really is, is a fact. Um, then the other huge um, moment was when I started teaching in East London. Um, I had... Uh, had I had gone up until O-level uh, in Bermuda, and then I came to England to study, did A-levels, and did my degree at the University of York. It's not too far from you. Yep. Uh, but then I started to teach. And this was, uh, giving my age away, this was in the early 1970s, when the whole idea of multicultural education was starting to, to gain some traction. People knew they had to do something because there were these children from places uh, that uh, the the native population were not familiar with, with cultures that were different, languages that were different. Uh, And so there was this push towards multicultural education. And um, I I was just a novice teacher, did not know what I was doing. I was in a a highly diverse um, uh, part of London, uh, and really the attempts to find texts that in some way represented uh, the some of the students in the class. Um, that, uh, that whole process began there uh, and carried on, has carried right on through my life to, to find texts that, that reflect uh, lives uh, that, that had been kind of erased in the past uh so so yes i think um that's that's how it all started
1: and you've published a novel previously with people tree mm-hmm. tell us a little about that if you would
0: yes well i've had two publications from people tree the first was a, a an anthology of short stories and sort of in small print from bermuda and beyond so some of them were from bermuda and some of them were from uh, other places particularly uh from places in africa because uh in between all of the beginning of my career as a teacher to to the time that i published that book uh, i had had a a major encounter with africa shall we say <laughs> we'll just leave it at that uh and um so that book uh gore point of departure was about um two people one from West Africa, and one from the from the Caribbean, uh, black from the Caribbean, who who tried to be together, tried to have a life together. Uh, and uh, for all kinds of reasons, historical and individual. Um, they didn't quite make it. But the, the, the issue was, uh, what is there the commonality between people born and raised in Africa with those from the diaspora? And that that was really the, the, the main thrust of the book. And Gore, Gore is a, is an island off uh, the coast of Senegal, um, which was a main uh, slave trading station. And so the business of, you know, Gore being the point of departure to, to the new world, the so-called new world,
1: yes. Great. Well, well that brings us on to the drowned forest. And, um, I mean, tell us... Tell us something about the how the, how the novel uh, came about, if you would.
0: Uh, well, I had just finished um, the, the Gore uh, Point of Departure book, and um, I knew that, you know, having written that story, I, I really had to put my energies into writing about the place of my birth uh, not just my birth, but I had then returned after uh, 20 or so years in, in the UK, a uh, couple of years in France, and then, you know, travels to West Africa in particular. I also had a little stint in the Seychelles. Trail. So I had been moving around, uh, but nevertheless, I came back home. Uh, and of course, the home that I came back to was not the home that I'd left. A lot of things had changed. Uh, and uh, so I, I needed to try to find a way of coming to grips with uh, a Bermuda that was old and familiar, as well as one that was every day emerging and and changing. Uh, and it, it struck me that I I could do with some assistance, um, not with the not with the content, but with how to structure a novel. Uh, that the kind of novel that I wanted to write, and so I, I fell upon the idea of, of doing a course, <laughs> and uh, so I was accepted at Lancaster University. You see, I like the north of England a lot. They
2: do, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: and uh, I, I did a PhD in creative writing there, and the, the the creative the PhD was divided into two sections. One was a major creative piece. And the sec- and that was 80% of the whole thing. And then the 20% was something called a reflective thesis. Uh, and that was um, giving the background to the techniques that I had uh, that had emerged uh, during the process. Uh, so that's that's how I, uh, I began the, the real work of the novel. But um, You know, even before I did that, I was saying, well, how am I going to tell this story? I don't want to tell the story of a single person. I want to tell a story of this community with the various segments, various types of people. Uh, It can't be just a single consciousness. It had to be something that reflected a a whole. And I, I just could not find a way in. But I did know that whatever we are currently is because of what our past was. Mm. And uh, so there had to be something connecting the past and the present. And and it was just by chance, I I started watching a, a, a new channel in Bermuda, which was the Government Information Channel. And on that channel, they had all kinds of very sort of uh, uh, diverse uh, offerings. Sometimes they were really interesting, and sometimes not so. But there is this one, and it was um, something uh, about a man who was well known in Bermuda, very famous uh, marine explorer. And he was chugging along in his boat, and he, you know, got beyond the, the you know, a, a w- well away from Bermuda waters, and and stopped and. He went down he was a famous diver and uh the camera followed him he went far down to the reef uh shelf 30 feet below the 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 surface of the water and he found he seemed to find something there and he was wrestling with it he was wrestling with it and finally he was able to attach it to a cable and haul it up those 30 feet to to the surface and to his boat Mm. and and so the, the camera followed and there was this strange looking object this strange looking object which then it became clear because he said well it's a root it's a root of an ancient cedar tree at a time when 30 feet below was in the open air and sustained a cedar forest and uh so you know he was he and his his uh crew were looking at this object and he took a little knife and cut a piece off and he smelled it and it still had the fragrance of cedar. Mm. So all of a sudden I knew that this was uh, an image or a metaphor for the people uh, who lived at the surface but there was something underneath that needed to be pulled up in order for them to have any kind of health emotional psychological health it needed to because it was still fragrant it was still there it was still there and so you know having made this uh having had this aha moment i thought oh how how am i gonna do this like eventually i found a way uh, uh but that image of uh of something that's buried or submerged having to surface in order for it to be uh understood and accepted um in the in the sort of real world um this is really what the how the the book operates Um, it's not a book that is uh what you might call plot driven you know there are not wars that are being fought and that sort of thing uh, prime ministers being dethroned <laughs> we, we don't have that we would like to <laughs> <laughs> if i'm writing that for today i would certainly put that in um but um it is it is really about the the, emo- the psychological um impact of the past on people and in fact um one of the um epigrams that I, I use for the three, one of the three parts of the um, the, the novel is, is a quote from William Faulkner, where he says, the past is never dead. It's not even past. And that really is our reality that the past is very much with us. Uh, and um, it, it is really uh, to our great disadvantage if we attempt to uh, pretend that it's not there, and it never happened. Uh, so, so that's that. So you, ha- so the, the actual uh, plot of the story is that there is a a young girl, uh, a young black girl, seventeen years old, um, very much uh, a difficult person. Uh, doesn't have any parents. She has. Uh, she's a veteran of foster care. Uh, but nevertheless, she seems to have some sort of, you know, she has a, a an intelligence, um, and uh, but she's got in trouble with, with the law, and she's given a chance. You know, the, the magistrate said, "I'm going to give you a chance. There are three people who know you, three sort of respectable women who know you, who have said that they're going to support you to at least finish school and and." perhaps uh, go forward. So it's really the story of that, those relationships, uh, how uh, this girl who was on the edge of, of falling off um, was um, the kind of relationship she, she uh, assumed with these others who, who seemed to be very, had it all together, but in fact, she is a bit of a lightning rod uh, and so they're supposed to be helping her, but in the end, she makes them have to confront their own uh, problems as well. Um, so so in, in the evolution of the story, we do have things that have happened in Bermuda's history. They're coming to the fore, it's more distant history and then more, more, more recent history. We have the individual histories, the stories of people's families, um which also come to, to define them and how they relate to one another. So um so yes, I think that's it. <laughs> Thank
1: you, Angela. That's it sounds fascinating. I love the image of the uh... mm. The forest and mm-hmm. uh, and 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 the root that comes up and mm-hmm. of cedar. I can, mm-hmm. I can see yes. why that is. It was a gift in a way. It was.
0: It was perfectly, you know, unexpected, undeserved, but I, I snatched it when
1: I saw. Absolutely, it. <laughs> when you take, take those things when they're offered. um Before we hear a, a section from the novel, uh could we hear a piece of music that you've chosen? It's called "It's Redemption Song." Uh, but tell us, tell us a little about about it and why you've chosen that particular version.
0: Okay, well, I've chosen both of the pieces of music which I chose. I, I chose them uh, because they were very. They helped me a lot during the last two years, the last two years of the pandemic, the fear, the loss all of the things that we, we all have experienced. Uh, I have always loved music. Um, I've loved, I have a very Catholic taste in music. Um, and, uh, and it has always had the power to move and to comfort um, To So it's always been a very important part of my life. So Redemption Song was, uh, was and still is. It's one of the great Bob Mar, oh, the great, Pieces of music of the late twentieth century. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had the great honor of seeing Bob Marley in person um, at the Roundhouse. I don't know if it still uh, it still exists. I don't
1: know, but I remember it very well.
0: Yes, yes. Oh, he was just a, a sort of mesmerizing uh, performer. Absolutely. Um, and and Redemption Song uh, was is like was an anthem to many people of color right around around the world um looking forward uh, honoring the the ancestors but looking forward uh, so the song itself is wonderful but i have chosen uh the arrangement of redemption song by this extraordinary family called the Canny masons have, have, do you know them do you I know certainly
1: them? do yes yes <laughs> well known in this country and extraordinary as you say
0: indeed uh, they are for anybody who's listening to this and hasn't heard of them. There are seven siblings <laughs> of the most astonishing talent uh, in in what you would would call European classical music. And so you have two cellists, three violinists, and two pianists. And um, they this was one. Uh, this was a part of an album they made. Um, and it was, it was from Saint-Saens' Carnival of the Animals, uh, but it was a, a kind of standalone thing which they just wanted to do, because although they are classical musicians, um, they grew up, uh, you know, hearing all kinds of music, loving all kinds of music, and so here are the Canny Masons, all seven of them, uh, from about I think the youngest at that time was about nine to 20-something playing redemption songs.
1: So that was Redemption Song, chosen by the writer Angela Barry, speaking from Bermuda um, with the Canyon Mason's uh, version of, of Redemption Song by Bob Marley. And um, Angela, uh, it would be lovely to hear a section from The Drowned Forest. So if you wouldn't mind reading a bit of it for us, that would be brilliant.
0: Okay, well, I'm going to read the prologue. So this is the very first bit of the whole book. The season has come and the water is warming. A new storm spins round a still center, a furious disk of wind and cloud dark with rain, feeding on the heat of the ocean. It swings northwards, grows stronger, churning above the tormented waves. On the horizon is a lonely atoll, an island in the belly of the ocean, The people of the island are hurricane people. They've learned the lessons of seabirds, of surf and doom-laden air. They batten down and take to their beds. The night slips through their windows and troubles their sleep. For some, the images they see are of ocean covering the sea mountains, engulfing the sacred forests, ever upwards, its rise faster than before, leaving them marooned on this hook-shaped rock. Even asleep, they cling to it. For others, the vision they see is a wind that makes the ocean heave and fashion hills out of water. The winds howl, the trees writhe, and the sleepers lie low as the breath of God roars over them. The last thing they see in the agony of their dreams is a great wave rising, curling, cresting, suspended like destiny above them. Written there by wind and water, are the stories and the histories of the people. The wave breaks with a terrible power, but their stories do not drown.
1: Thank you very much, Angela. Sounds intriguing. I'm looking forward to reading the book. When does it come out?
0: Um, It's due to come out uh, by the end of this month.
1: I, I, I saw that um, you you'd been very involved with the work of Brian Berland, um, who, to to be honest with you, I'd heard of, but I've never never read any any novels by him. Um, and you've called him the, the greatest writer from Bermuda, who who people haven't heard of in a sense. Right, exactly. People <laughs> in Bermuda. Perhaps perhaps you could. Uh, do, do, does your writing owe anything to to him or to any other? writers from Bermuda?
0: Uh, well, uh, Bermuda does not have a history of great writers in the same way um, that the Caribbean does. Um, we lost uh, uh, one of the great ones this week with, um, with George Lamming's uh, death. Um, so while the the Caribbean was starting to produce great writers, uh, from the '50s onwards, uh, Bermuda has been um, behind the curve, if you like. However, Brian Berland um, was uh, was like a lone uh, a lone shark, and all of that. Um, he uh, Unlike most of the, the Caribbean writers that we can talk about, George Lamming, V.S. Uh, Naipaul, Derek Walcott, and so on, um, he uh, came from a, a wealthy white Bermudian uh, background. Uh, and uh, however, uh, he 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 kind of turned his back on 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 all of that, and um, wrote when in fact he was supposed to have joined the family business and become, you know, carried on with that sort of life. He he turned his back on all of that and set his mind to being a a good writer, a great writer. And so um, the the problem that Brian had was not that he was not gifted, he was very gifted. Uh, And he wrote about um, the realities of Bermuda, which, almost always boiled down to realities of racial uh, the racial divide um he, he faced them squarely uh, at a time when it was most uncomfortable for most people to to hear that that kind of narrative mm-hmm. but he persevered for all of his life. so when I said he was not uh, well known he he became a, a fellow of the Royal society. So, so he was well known in certain circles, in certain places, but he was not accepted really as a writer in Bermuda until he was a much older man and in a sense had almost stopped writing. Uh, so I, I um, one of the things I did at the Bermuda College, I was part of a group that um, felt that he needed to be honored. Uh, and uh, so uh, a... Uh, Brian Berlin's Center for Research was was established at at the Bermuda College. And um, many of his manuscripts and papers have been um, preserved. Uh, They have been preserved uh, properly in a library, and now are there for for another generation or this generation to, to be able to access. But um, the, the, the story of Brian's life is very much mixed up in this whole problem, that, that the racial problem that we've had, that it, he, he went against the grain uh, by turning his back on business and actually embracing um, the, the black heart black of, of, of his life and the life of the island. Yes, so I, I would say that you know all Bermudian writers owe something to Brian. Um uh, because he, he had courage, you know, he he had the courage to 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 live life in that way. And to be productive,
1: yes. Thank you. And perhaps you could read uh something more from from the novel if if if, if, <laughs> if, I'm sure, if you don't mind. No problem.
0: Um so so, although you know there are there are some somewhat painful things in the book, um, I also um, try to celebrate the island as well. And um, the, the the part that I'm going to read now is is one such uh, moment. Um, so, you know, like every place uh, in the Western world, anyway, Christmas has its own. Uh, Thing, all the things that you have to do, um, and um, oh, we have to eat and drink a lot. That's for sure. <laughs> but um, what what is something marvelous about the Bermudian Christmas? Doesn't happen on Christmas Day. It happens on Boxing Day, when the Gombe's appear. Now, the Gombe's are our oldest. Uh, it's it's the, it, they are uh, it's the gombe is a figure that can go right back, not just to the settlement of Bermuda, but right back to the continent of Africa. Um, so these are dancers uh, in a hugely elaborate um, costume uh, who uh, are in complete masquerade. Uh, and uh, they are They are followed by a whole phalanx of of drummers. Uh, And on Boxing Day and on New Year's Day and a few other days, now there are a bit more, you can see the Gombe's more than they used to. You used to be able to, because in the past, you just saw them like twice in a year. but now you can see them more often. But what they're not static, you, they move. They, they dance and, and, and walk and, and run and, and they just move around. And uh, so you, you can sometimes just stay still and see them dancing, you know, in a kind of static way. But then if you're really good, you're gonna follow them and you're gonna just end up somewhere you didn't even expect <laughs> to end up. <laughs> Uh, there's something great, very thrilling about the Gombees. And um, I remember seeing them as a child and having that thrill, but also being quite terrified of them. Uh, And I was was really moved and and so excited when I eventually uh, got to West Africa and found at least one figure that was very reminiscent um, of of the Gombe figure. The same moving around, the same masquerade. The drummers—you hear the gombays before you see them—and uh, but our our gombays are very particular. You know, they have the you know the African print is huge, but there are other things that that are unique to Bermuda, which have been included in the dances and in the things and in in what they wear. Mm. And drumming because the drumming is very African but when you go to the Caribbean and you hear the drumming you're going to find um the the big drums that have you know goat skins or you know the skins of animals but these drums are snare drums that were uh, used by the British military in Bermuda so you know you use those drums but you produce the African sound uh so so it's, it's this combination that makes it quite unique. Anyway, so what, what I'm going to read is from um, about a third of the way into the book. And uh, Genesis is the pain in the neck um, <laughs> 17 year old girl. Uh, she's living with Nina, a very upright woman, uh, who's trying to put her on the right path. And they have had their, Boxing Day meal, and then they hear the Gombe drums and like, off they go. So, Nina is the, is the woman. Nina squeezed her eyes shut and felt rather than saw the crowd part to let them pass. When she opened her eyes, she and Genesis were on the inner fringe of a tumultuous circle in the center were the Gombe's. They banished the night in the pool of brightness in which they danced. They were giants in their tall crowns of peacock feathers, inscrutable gods behind their painted masks, irrepressible popinjays in their fringed trousers and overskirts in their beaded swirling capes. From the smallest dancer just mastering the steps, to the fearsome captain dominating his troops with his whistle and his whip, all were creatures reborn. Their element was color, their song was movement, their master rhythm. The circle had spilled across the entire street. The revelers were giving their tired feet a rest, contenting themselves with moving on the spot, the chanting dying on their lips, nothing could compete with the drums as they beat out the rhythms of Africa and summoned the spirits of the night. The captain, 10 feet of brilliant menace gave a shrill blast on his whistle and spun around a thousand lights bouncing from the tiny fragmented mirrors on his immense tasseled cape. Never missing a step, he faced his troops, his dangling leather whip An active threat. They leapt to attention and formed a a circle around him. He blew his whistle again, cracked the whip and brought crowd and dancers under his control. As the captain moved from one foot to the other at the center of the circle, his dancers began to run around its circumference, each clutching a painted tomahawk. As the circle became more defined, the dancers, 20, maybe 30 of them, became warriors, fierce, dazzling, each waiting for a sign from their leader. Another blast of the whistle and they broke the circle and bending low and spinning, their peacock crowns parallel to the ground, their capes flying out around them like rainbows, they formed a straight line in front of him, ordering them to stay, With a stab of a single gloved finger, the captain turned towards the drummers and covered the space separating them in a sideways motion. The drummers pounded out their welcome. Off he went towards the onlookers flowing sideways like a wave. With one arm outstretched, the other brandishing his whip, he lunged forward and reared up monstrous in front of the crowd. The people scattered screaming. Amid the pandemonium, Nina realized that she was no longer holding the girl's hand. Genesis was nowhere to be seen. The drumming swelled and something told Nina to turn around. Genesis was there right in front of the captive. One foot planted on the ground, the other raised in challenge One hand on her shoulder clutching an invisible tomahawk, the other arm outstretched ripples of movement emanating from the middle of her body. The captain continued to tower over her, brilliant, dangerous, like a shaft of lightning touching the earth. But Genesis did not back down.
1: stuff fascinating and so visual i could see it all uh and uh, yes i have i googled gumbies gumbies
0: okay
1: uh, yeah absolutely extraordinary
0: extraordinary yes they are they
1: Uh, are and wonderful drumming and Mm -hmm. so angela the, the novel comes out very soon are you what are you going to do for the launch of it
0: well, um, the first part of the launch is thanks to People Tree Press. Of course, everything is thanks to People Tree Press. Um, we're having an online launch, and I'm not quite sure of the date, but it's before the end of the month. And it's uh, it's me in conversation with Jacob Ross, the assist, the associate editor of uh, People Tree Press. Great mentor. I mean. All praises due to, to Jacob, who helped really to bring the this uh, novel to its completion. He really was immensely helpful to me. So I will be here, and he will be there, uh, and uh, we will have the online launch. And then on the fifteenth of July, we are going to have the launch uh, in Bermuda, and. Um, and Jacob Ross is gonna be coming. He's going to be coming to represent the People Tree Press. Uh, and and the, all the, uh, they're gonna be, of course, people there, but the other um, very important uh, guest, if you like, of, of the launch is um, that route itself. The, we are doing the um launch in the Bermuda Underwater Exploration Inst, uh, Institute, which is a, as a kind of maritime museum. And right there is that same route. It's on. It's been on display for maybe ten years now. Um, So you know, just just in case you wondered, you know, whether I'd made the, that route up. That route is. <laughs> The root is right there. And as is our history, our origins, they are with us all the time. And uh, what we are trying to do is to come to terms with them so that uh, the future for people like Genesis and any future generations uh, will not be, um, uh, I don't know what the word is, uh, my, my childhood always had this great, great shadow over it uh, because at Bermuda of that time, there were two completely separate Bermudas, two sets of schools, two sets of, of churches, two sets of kinds of employment that you could have, uh, two sets of places that you could go. Um, so that doesn't that doesn't exist anymore. But for people who lived it, it's you know, you can't get rid of it uh, unless you face it. you can't you can't get rid of it by pretending it didn't happen. Uh, so um, I think this was the the, the um, impetus for the book so that uh, my grandchildren, for instance, uh, will grow up in a Bermuda way, which is not like that.
1: So. Thank you, Angela. Angela Barry talking about the drowned Forest. So, unfortunately, we have to end very, very soon, but you've chosen um, one other piece of music. The track is called Yarobi. Uh, perhaps you could talk a little bit about that and, and why you've chosen it.
0: Right. Well, I, I did mention that um, uh, one of the great um, experiences of my life was a kind of encounter with Africa, and um, it, is, uh, it became a permanent part of my life, um, and um, so, this, this uh, piece of music uh, is, you know, a reflection of, of that encounter. Um, so, um, the, it, it again, I, I didn't know this piece of music before lockdown, you know, we were all isolated in our houses. Fortunately, we had these little <laughs> laptops <laughs> where we could explore the world. Um, But I I knew something. I didn't know the particular um, artist, but I knew about the griot from uh, that part of West Africa, the Mandinka uh, people uh, and the griot, which is an ancient um, uh, profession, uh, more than a profession. Uh, Somebody who is a musician, a poet, a historian, storyteller, uh, and and this dates back a thousand years. Um, the 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 griots were very close to the, the 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 royal kings and so on. They were advisors. So the griots had a very very important role in traditional Africa and the in, in traditional part of that part of Africa. And they played this remarkable uh, instrument called the kora, and. I, I was supposed to check that. It's either 13 or 15 instru- uh, strings. It's a stringed instrument with a huge uh, belly, like, like, a, like a, uh, a cello, but, but it's really a big calabash. Uh, and, and, they, and these are virtuoso musicians, and they, they, they are in families. So you can't just say, oh, I'm gonna be a, a griot. You know, you have to be in a family and so their families have have gone through the generations. Um, And so they know how to play the music, they're taught from very early how to play the the kora, and they're taught the songs, which are also uh, histories of of the clan. Um, And uh, so the the person who is, is singing and playing the kora in this piece is named Sona Jobarte, and she's from the Gambia. Uh, she's from one of these great families. Uh, but up until Sona, the griots were all male. And so she has been a, a, a pioneer uh, in terms of that. She is a, a, an extraordinary person. Uh, but um, the song itself, Yarabi, um, means beloved. And um, uh, um, I'm just going to say that uh, Brian Berland said, "Our beloved Bermuda, son child in a coral cradle." So, beloved is not just uh, in the in the Gambian context and and the West African context because it was it was played uh, uh, in various places. Um, this beloved was not just between two individuals. Beloved was. The, the community, the nation. this And it started to uh, gain traction in the 1960s as these countries were gaining their independence. So Yarabi, beloved, it can be for a person, but it also can be for a place. So um, although this is not Bermudian music, the, the sentiment is what I also feel. Yarabi. I'm Love the haiku. Love the sonnet. Love the quatrain and
1: the couplet. Love the words. From East Leeds FM.